Go ahead and turn to me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We're going to get right into things. I don't even have an introduction this, this, uh, this evening, uh, but on Sunday evenings, we've been focusing on a follow-up lesson, if you want to call it that, to our Sunday school. So the goal of uh, my goal on Sunday nights is to continue what we learned during Sunday school. If you weren't in Sunday school, that's cool. We're, we're still, this is still applicable to you. But I guess the, where I, I don't know how you'd say it, like my, the, the seed, I guess, if you want to call it, for my sermon this evening was taken from Sunday school. For the past six weeks, ending this morning, we've been making our way through uh, what the unit titled The Full Picture of Christmas, where we looked at different individuals in the Christmas story, specific individuals in the Christmas story. And like I said, this morning we finished off by looking at the wise men. The wise men are the magi. I don't like calling them kings because they were not kings. They were magi. They were astrologers and real smart people that were more than likely part of the royal court somewhere in modern-day Iraq in that general Middle Eastern area. So what we're going to do tonight, and kind of what came to my mind immediately when I'm thinking about worship, was John chapter 4. Uh, this is just a powerful section of Scripture, one of my favorite sections of Scripture, which I say that about every section of Scripture. But this is such a beautiful section of Scripture and, and, and talks so powerfully about worshiping God um, from different perspectives. So that's what we're going to do. Let's get right into it. Like I said, Matt, not Matthew, John chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 1 down to verse 30, and then we're going to skip ahead um, real quickly at the end to look at verse 39 to 42. So let's start right off at verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1 to 6. Uh, as we get into the text. I, like I said, no points, no nothing. I'm just looking at the text tonight. So, uh, John chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making, more, making and, and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So let's gain a context of what we got going on here. So the growth of Jesus' popularity caused the religious leaders of Israel, specifically in this case the Pharisees, to start pressing in on him, if you want to call it that. Knowing that his time had not yet come, again, Jesus is God. He knew the big picture. He knew that it was not his time. He retreated, if you want to call it that, back to Galilee. He was in the Judean area where Jerusalem is located, and he made his way up north back to Capernaum in Galilee, the region of Galilee. If you think about Sunday morning, think the Sea of Galilee. That's the area he spent most of his time serving and ministering upon this earth. Now, and here, this is where we're really going to get a context for the interaction we're about to see between Jesus and this woman at the well. The trip to Galilee... Needed, in the trip to Galilee, Jesus would have had to deal with what I'm going to call the Samaria issue. The Samaria issue. The Jewish people did not like the Samaritans. They did not like the Samaritans. And I'm not going to do this justice, but I'm going to do my absolute best to explain to you why. 
Following Solomon's death, King Solomon, the United Kingdom of Israel split into two. There was a civil war, two kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Judah, making up the, the two tribes of, of Judah and Benjamin, made up the southern kingdom with Jerusalem as its capital, and then the northern kingdom of Israel, which they called Israel, making, made up of the ten remaining tribes. These two countries fought nonstop until both of them were conquered by other people, uh, respectively the Babylonians and the Assyrians. After the Assyrian Empire took the people of Israel out of Samaria, uh, the area of Samaria, they brought foreigners in. They, they what would, not repatriated, I don't know the right terminology, but they, they brought other people to live there. Essentially brought immigrants in to live in Samaria, where, which is where it was the country of Israel, the northern kingdom. At some point after a while, the Syrians got a little generous, whatever, and they repatriated, that's the right terminology here, the Israelites back there. So you have the, the, this northern kingdom of Israel gets re-intermixed with this other kingdom of people that had, uh, had been living there for a period of time. They started intermarrying and intermixing, and next thing you know, we had mixed races as well as a mixed religion. The racially mixed Samaritans also, like I said, intermixed um, with, with the, the religion of Judaism. So now the Samaritan version, like as we're going to hear this, morning, this evening, I keep on saying this morning, the Samaritans worshipped God to some level, but it wasn't the same way that the Judeans did. Not the Judeans. The, the, well, yeah, the Judeans did. Uh, it was not Judaism as we would understand it. The mixed religion of the Samaritans found its center of worship upon Mount Gerizma, or Gerizim, Gerizim, uh, where, there, um, where there are still some actual practicing Samaritans to this day. There are still people, if you were to go there, they would call themselves Samaritans, and they would be worshiping according to their mixed Samaritan religion, like I said, a combination of Judaism and pagan religions. While the Babylonians repatriated the Judeans, the Samaritans got angry. Like when they repatriated the, um, the, the Judeans, the people of Judah, the Samaritans got angry, and essentially that's when the rivalry began. You know, they just went at it all the time, I guess kind of like the Browns and the Steelers or something like that, and that's not a good one, like, the, like, like Ohio State and, and Michigan. And that's essentially the rivalry, except this rivalry involved death and stuff like that. So, um, so these two groups just didn't like each other. That's the point. So here's the issue. Jesus wants to travel from Judea, from Jerusalem, up back to Galilee. The problem is a big country of Samaria is right in the, in the middle. So he had two options, the quicker route or the detour. Most Jewish people would go around the Jordan River into the country of Perea on the opposite side of the Jordan just to, get to, get, just to get past Samaria and into Galilee. They would take the longer route to avoid Samaria, not Jesus. This situation, Jesus says, we're going straight up because I have a plan. And then, of course, it's a powerful plan. So Jesus, in, in, in this time, went straight up through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. So he passed through Samaria for, again, obvious reasons. His group found themselves in the village of Sychar, uh, which was near Shechem between Mount Ebel and Mount Gerizim. Again, that, that, that mountain that they, they worshipped on, the, the holy mountain. So he was close to this mountain, and that's important, as we're going to find out in the coming verses. In Genesis chapter 48, we can read about how Jacob gave Joseph, this plot of land which Jacob brought, bought earlier, uh, we see in Genesis chapter 33. After a long day of traveling, Jesus sat beside the well called Jacob's well. The, you know, the, the, the origin of this well is not necessarily known. It was just a well that they, as we're going to read, went all the way back to Jacob's day. This, the time of the day was about 6 p.m. It was the, later in the day. It was the end of the day. So now look at your text again. Look at uh, John chapter 4, verse 7 to 9. 
There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, said to Jesus, how is it that you, that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Again, that is reiterating the point. They did not like each other. Out of all, and then, okay, not only they did not like each other, out of all the people to interact with her, it was the rabbi. Again, Jesus is a teacher. He would have been understood as a rabbi. Jesus, the rabbi, or let's just make it you know, a little more blanketed, a Jewish rabbi would have never communicated with a Samaritan woman, let alone a regular Samaritan, let alone looking at exactly who she was, as we're going to find out in her, in her heart, essentially, in her sinfulness. A male rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, communicating with a sinful, as we will find out, female Samaritan must have been a once-in-a-lifetime situation. This is, has to have been a once-in-a-million kind of thing, once-in-a-lifetime type deal. John tells us that Jesus' disciples had gone off to buy food for the group, leaving Christ alone. At the arrival of the Samaritan woman, Jesus requests a drink from her. He asked her for a drink. The normal prejudices, and this is from my Bible knowledge commentary, says the normal prejudices of the day prohibited public conversations between men and women, between Jews and Samaritans, and especially between strangers. A Jewish rabbi would rather go thirsty than violate these priorities. Of course, that's not what Jesus is about to do because he has a plan. Let's look at verse 10 and we get into this. Look at verse 10 and then we're going to move quickly into verse 11 and 12. Uh, verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If she only knew who she was talking about, we're going to get into the living water in a minute. Now look at verse 11 and 12. Uh, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the, the, gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. So the woman was too distracted by the physical to see the spiritual. That's really where we're at here. She was too distracted by how Jesus was going to get this living water. Because living water could be understood from obviously the spiritual way that Jesus is about to express it. But it also could be understood as just active water, flowing water, like a river type thing. You know, um, healthy water compared to stagnant water. So the woman thought he, Jesus is talking about living water. I mean, and she's like, well, you don't even have a way to get it. The well's deep. There's no way for you to get it. How are you going to get this water? You just asked me for a drink, remember? And the woman's completely confused is my thought here. Uh, she, thought, um, she thought his answer would have been a definite no to the question that she then asked. Are you not greater? Are you, are you not greater than, than our father Jacob? Are you? I think, I, are you not greater than whatever it is? She asked She's asking him, I mean, you're not possibly saying that you're better than the, the forefather, Jacob. And of course, I mean, again, if she knew who she was talking with, and she would have a clear understanding that, yes, he is greater. Now look at verse 13 to 15. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, referring again to the water in the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I may not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. So the living water that Jesus wants to provide is directed from God. It's given to us by, from God who will save us, not on the basis of, our, of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 3 verse 5. Jesus is talking about the washing Christians will receive through God the Spirit. Jesus is talking about saving us is what he's saying. Now, who wouldn't want this, right? I mean, any one of us, I mean, anyone in the right mind would say, yeah, you can save me. I'm not complaining. You know, the woman sure did misunderstood the whole point of it, though. I mean, she misunderstood again. She was focused on the physical more than the spiritual. She's like, yeah, I mean, and I almost wonder if, if her statement here in verse 15 is more sarcasm. Yeah, of course I want water that's never going to make me thirst again. You know, I can drink once and never have to drink again. I don't have to come and do all this heavy labor. I, I wonder. I don't know. It might be speculation, though, too. It's it. Her, her misunderstanding came about as a result of her sin, though. And Jesus is about to point this out. So look at verse 16 down to 18 now. <coughs> 16 to 18. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. So Jesus just pretty much looked at her situation and told her everything that she kept in her heart. You know, I mean, all of us have those things that we don't want to really tell everyone else, and we don't necessarily want everyone to know about and that's what Jesus is like, you know, this man that she's never met just threw all her baggage out on the floor kind of thing, you know, threw it right down, down the well. Um, Jesus asked the woman to bring her husband. Of course, the woman correctly answered that she had no husband. She was li currently living with a man who is not her husband, and she had had five previous husbands. The context doesn't tell us whether these are deceased husbands or divorced husbands. Nonetheless, obviously, Jesus is kind of condemning her for her behavior. In only a few words, Christ revealed this woman's sin his omniscience, meaning his all-knowing ability to know everything, and her need for salvation. So just a couple of words, we get these three things immediately. The sin of the woman, the all-knowing power of Christ, and then finally her amazing need for salvation, which is our need as well. Now the conversation heads towards worship. This is really what I wanted to focus on tonight as we move in on to, to just understanding the significance of true worship. Uh, it almost seems like the woman changes her tune, if you want to call it that. She's trying to change the subject. Uh, verse 19 and 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people, meaning the Jewish people, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Again, I just get this vibe that she's like, Well, I don't really want to talk to you about my stuff. So let's change the subject. You know, so in an attempt to change the subject, the woman throws a difficult question at whom she clearly perceives as being just more, a lot more than just a passing teacher. This is a prophet. This is the person to, to call out upon to get these different answers. And so her question was, where was the correct place to worship? Where is the correct location to worship God? The Jewish people, as well as what the Bible says, that clear location is in Jerusalem at the temple. I mean, if we looked in the Old Testament, that is where it would say to worship God. Of course, we're going to find out today that we have a different way of worshiping God. But from the Jewish perspective and from the perspective that we were in, the correct answer was Jerusalem, was in the temple. The Samaritans believed that the only proper place to worship was upon this mountain that Jesus was near, this mountain of Gerizim. 
Gerism. Uh, the woman is asking Jesus which is right. Jesus clarifies the issue in a, direct, in a direction that the woman just couldn't possibly see coming. Look at verse 21 now. So he, he once again has the perfect answer. He says to her in verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. An hour is coming in reference to the time following Jesus, following his death, following his resurrection, where worshiping God will be changed forever. During the church age, which we're currently in, the time between Pentecost and the rapture, worshiping God takes place wherever he is found. And of course, God is found within the hearts of Christians. God is in us, meaning we can be out in the middle of the woods worshiping God, and guess what? We'll be right where God is, because God is within us. The Holy Spirit has indwelt his followers, the followers of Christ. Now look at verse 22. We're going to hear um, Jesus essentially correct this woman's false theology. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know, meaning the Samaritan people worship what you do not know. We, the Jewish people, worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So in stating a truth to this woman, I want to emphasize that Jesus is not condoning the behavior of the Samaritans. So he stated a truth in that eventually worship is going to be looked at from a different perspective as it is now. There's no correct place to worship. We don't need to make a sojourning to Mecca or to Jerusalem to worship God. Like, you know, the Jewish people, the men would travel down to Jerusalem multiple times a year for the Jewish holidays because that was the only place you're supposed to worship God to that level. We don't have to do that. We can worship God here. There's not a specific location. Imagine if you had to travel to Columbus four times a year to worship God. I mean, it just wouldn't work for me. Steve might be able to, though. I don't know. I mean, he's gotten good at that. But the, the, the point I'm getting here is that Christ tells this woman that the Samaritans are worshiping incorrectly. That's what he says. He says, you are wrong. You know, you know your whole people are wrong. And in a minute, she's going to understand who he is. So in a moment, she's going to recognize that he had all the authority in the world to tell her that she and her Samaritan people are wrong. The Jewish people are worshiping correctly. They're worshiping, I mean, as in logistically, they're worshiping correctly. They're worshiping in Jerusalem, they're worshiping at the temple. He also tells us that salvation is from the Jews, which of course is very true as well, because it was through the Jewish people that Jesus came and, and saved us, of course. Now look at verse 23 and 24. This is really, these are the key verses, I would say. And Jesus says, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. True worshipers are those who realize that Jesus is the truth of God. Uh, go ahead and keep your finger here and turn to John chapter 3. So go over one little page. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 21. Uh, verse 21, John chapter 3. Verse 21 says, But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So the truth is, is God. It's tr the truth is the light. Now keep, uh, keep, well, I mean, I can just quote it. And then, of course, uh, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The, the true worshipers are going to worship the truth of, of the whole message of, uh, of the Lord. True worshipers are those who realize that Jesus is the one and only way to the Father. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, and there, is no, and, there, and there is salvation in no one else, 
For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. To worship in truth is to worship God through Jesus. To worship in spirit is to worship in the new realm which God has revealed to people. The Father is seeking true worshipers because he wants people to live in reality, not in falsehood. Everybody is a worshiper, but because of sin, many are blinded and constantly put their trust in worthless objects. That's from the Bible Knowledge Commentary as well. I can't write that clearly. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 24 and 25 says, Therefore God gave them over in their lust, in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And then verse 25 is the key. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So very true. Worship of God can only be done through the one Jesus who expressed God's invisible nature and by virtue of the Holy Spirit, who opens to, who opens to, a, who opens to a believer the new realm of the kingdom. Again, Bible knowledge commentary. I don't. This was this verse. These two verses are just so loaded with theology. I don't even know if I can truly give them justice in trying to proclaim it on my own. I mean, the reality is. Again, looking at verse. Where would we go? I'm not in the right right page anymore. Uh, looking at verse 23 again. An hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Uh, I think really the point is it's going to be more than just going to a building. I mean, this is a beautiful building, but if it burnt down, we'd still worship God tomorrow. It's not going to stop. We're not going to suddenly refrain from worshiping God because our location of worship isn't there anymore. We're going to continue worshiping God no matter what. And this was obviously something that the people of uh, the early church understood so well. In that in the midst of their struggles and persecution, they never stopped praising God. Honestly, I love hearing the stories. It's such powerful stories of people literally being burned at the stake and singing praises of, to God at the same time. And I just, I pray that we can do the same. Look at verse 25 now as we move on. I'm heading towards my ending here. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So part of the perverted religion of the Samaritans held to a coming Messiah. They believed that the Messiah was coming. That was part of Judaism that they held on to. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, though. So there's a lot of the Old Testament that they didn't believe that. So as a result, their understanding of who this Messiah was was, was faulted, if you want to call it that. They were looking for more of a Moses-like figure, a Moses-like figure who would solve all of their problems. He would be like that person that comes in and answers all their questions, kind of like what the woman said. I mean, I kind of feel that the woman was once again trying to use this as her escape route. She knew she was wrong, so she kind of found a way to kind of push it aside and thinking that Jesus would agree, yeah, when the Messiah comes, we'll understand Little did she know she was standing in the presence of the Messiah. Look at verse 26. This is one of my absolute favorite verses, especially the way the follow-up takes place. And I just envisioned Jesus looking at her. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I mean, imagine this woman who to some level was living a life of, of horrible sin. I mean, she was living in sexual sin for sure. She was a Samaritan woman who was rejected by the Jewish people was rejected by the Romans, for that matter, enslaved by the Romans, just like the Jewish people. And you just wonder what she's thinking as he says these words. 
in, in, in the reaction, as we're going to see in a minute, it's quite clear that she believed him. I mean, in my mind, it's very clear. Jesus makes this powerful declaration that clearly caused the woman to be speechless. I mean, she had nothing else to say. John doesn't give any additional conversation. It ends here. Of course, it ends with the interruption of the disciples, which we'll read now. Look at verse 27 down to 30. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? Uh, real quickly, again, they recognized the, the uh, I guess, the what political correct, um, or the, the non-political correct situation that was taking place. He, the rabbi, the man, the Jewish person, wasn't supposed to be talking to this, this, this female Samaritan um, ordinary person, let alone the fact that he obviously knew of her sinful condition. And they recognized that, yet they didn't say anything, which I always found interesting. Then verse 28, So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Uh, it's something I find interesting, a couple things. I mean, she was so excited to tell other people about Jesus that she left her water pot behind. Remember, that was the reason she was there in the first place. She had one job, and kind of like my wife, she got distracted. I mean, the, 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 that's really what took place. She left her water pot. She said, I don't need the water pot no more. I got living water now. And she needed to tell other people about Christ. And, and another thought I had, isn't it amazing and I know Tabitha kind of tried to hint at, hint at this this morning when it comes to looking at us and our upbringing and how the people that, that, that had such an impact on us when we were children, right? If I was going to make a list of those individuals, most of them are women. And I just think that's so powerful in a, in a world that, I mean, even in a religion, I mean, look at the situation here. The Jewish people didn't put the women in the same category of the men, yet so frequently we, that's what we see. This woman went and told the men of her community about Jesus, I mean, how awesome is that? I mean, it's just, just so, so powerful in my mind. The, women's re the woman's reaction to Jesus' claim clearly showed the impact that the conversation had on her life. Others from the community went out to see, see him as a result. And now skip ahead to verse 39 to 42, and we're going to finish my text for tonight. Verse 39 continues. Um, it says, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. What a powerful thing right there. I mean, and then what came to mind immediately when I'm, when I'm preparing this is the, what's the right, I never think of the right word, comparing this to the reaction from this morning. I mean, you had this group of people this morning when, when Jesus heals this demonic man and they rejected him in fear. But look at this reaction. Not, they, not only did they respond appropriately, they asked him to stay. They recognized that he's more than just a prophet. They recognized that he's savior of all the world. They recognized that he was the Messiah. I mean, wow. I mean, it's just to me, it's just unbelievable that this woman uh, had such an impact. Her, her, her reaction had such an impact upon the people of her community. And as a result, people came to know Christ. 
Praise God for that because there's no other reason. People believed in him. They believed in Jesus because of the testimony of the woman at the well and because of the very words of Christ. Praise him for that. So let me kind of close up with this. Our worship needs to be directed towards Jesus. That's kind of the essence of all of this. Our worship needs to be focused on the, the source of our, our praise kind of thing. The, the only thing we can possibly worship is God. And, of course, the only reason we worship God is because of Jesus. Obviously, they're, they're tied in together, all that stuff. There'd be no reason, to, to, to even the Jewish people, right? There's no reason to go to synagogue on Saturday if you don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah because it's not fulfilled. We, as Christians, have the fulfilled word of God. It is finished. It is completed. Jesus completed it. There are no boundaries to genuine worship if that worship is truly focused on the Lord. It don't matter where you worship. It don't matter... Like all that matters is who you worship is what I'm getting at. Only one person needs to be worshipped, and that's the Lord in heaven. You need to clear your minds of all the distractions and make sure that you are truly focused on God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Be Trend, or be conform, what am I, I got to read this right, where'd I go? I used to do, though, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. One of my professors told me, be transformed to God, not conformed to the world. Let us close in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you and I praise you again. I ask that you just help us recognize who you are and all that you've done for us. Help us know that you are an awesome God that loves us so greatly and that if we put our full trust in you, that everything else will be okay. Lord, I thank you and I praise you in your name. Amen.